0: Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده نصلي We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Continuing with Dalal Asad, Formations of the Secular, Christianity, Islam, Modernity. We are on page 4 at the bottom. What follows is not. 24 at the bottom what follows is not a social history okay continue
1: what follows is not a social history of secularization not even a history of it as an idea it is an exploration of epistemological assumptions of the secular that might help us to be help us be a little clearer about what is involved in the anthropology of secularism
0: okay so basically what we're saying is we're not looking at the history of the idea we're not looking at the history of its manifestation what we're looking is we're trying to make sense of it as a system of thought
1: The secular, I argue, is neither continuous with the religious that supposedly preceded it, that is, it is not the latest phase of a a sacred origin, nor a simple break from it, that is, it is not the opposite, in essence, that excludes the sacred. I take the secular to be a concept that brings together certain behaviors, knowledges, and sensibilities in modern life. To appreciate this is not enough to show that what appears to be necessary is really contingent, that in certain respects, the secular obviously overla- overlaps with the religious. It is a matter of showing how contingencies relate to changes in the grammar of concept, concepts. That is how th- the changes in concepts articulate changes in practices. Okay,
0: so, a number of points here. <laughs> number one, he says he does not argue that the secular is continuous with religion. It's not a break <coughs> from religion. It's not the opposite of religion. Okay. Rather, um, and it also does not exclude the sacred, rather, um, it's bringing together certain specific behaviors, knowledges, sensibilities in what we call modern life. Okay. So it overlaps with the religious. Okay. But we are looking to see what it is, not in relationship to religion, but what it is on its own. Like if that was the center of the world, you're defining the world according to that. So we have to define what that is.
1: My purpose in this initial chapter, therefore, is not to provide the outline of a historical narrative, but to conduct a series of inquiries into aspects of what we have come to call the secular. So although I follow some connections at the expense of others, this should not be taken to imply that I think there was a single line of affiliation in the formation of the secular. In my view, the secular is neither singular in origin nor stable in its historical identity, although it works through a series of particular oppositions. I draw my material almost entirely from Western European history because that history has profound consequences for the ways that the doctrine of secularism
0: has been conceived and implemented in the rest of the modernizing world. Okay, so another key point here. As we've been saying, it is, it is uh, primarily formed in Western, uh, Western Europe, which means France, Germany, and to some degree, Britain. And then from there, we're also not saying it's one thing. Nor are we saying it's been the same thing throughout all this time. Okay, continue.
1: I try to understand the secular, the way it has been constituted, made real, connected to, and detached from particular historical conditions. The analysis that, analyses that I offer here are intended as a counter to the tri- triumphalist history of the secular. I take the view, as others have done, that the religious and the secular are not as essentially fixed categories.
0: Okay, so that's another point. Religious is also not a fixed category, right? All these things evolve, maybe, in the same time, in different places. and They definitely evolve over time and place.
1: However, I do not claim that if one stripped appearances, one would see that some apparently secular institutions were really religious. I assume, on the contrary, that there is nothing essentially religious, nor any universal essence that defines sacred language or sacred experience.
0: Okay, so think about this. So he's saying, uh, there is nothing essentially religious, okay? That's kind of crazy. So what would be something that is essentially religious? You would think, like, worship would be essentially... Yeah, but it could be, if we're saying that, um, all religions are made up, or if we're saying that all religions but one are made up, then all those other things are are fulfilling a social purpose. Right. That we might categorize as religion, but it's still primarily a social purpose. So would then would you be able to say like if you offered a another way for people to socialize, you'd be able to get rid of religion? Yeah. No, you'd be able to get rid of each of those practices. Right. But then isn't that
1: something that like you was talking about earlier where people even when they try to replace
0: or get rid of religion, it still finds its way. So this thing that we call religion seems to still appear. Yeah. And, and so if we put that point together with this one, we're saying, religion see, uh, seems to find its way to be present somewhere. But it doesn't mean anything's essentially religious. Okay. It just keeps sneaking in somehow. Yeah. Right? Because uh, take, you know, uh, all the pr- parts of, you know, Catholic sacrament you know, mass on a Sunday, and then take Super Bowl Sunday, and you can argue that the type of devotion, the type of behaviors of the two are comparable. So why is Catholic mass religious, but Super Bowl Sunday not? Or Eid? Right.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Could you you say because of some... Because the participants in that, in those devotions, the quote-unquote normally, stereotypically religious ones,
0: seek something beyond what's like... So how many people who go to Eid go for the religious purpose as opposed to the social? Mm-hmm. Right?
1: But, but I'm saying... He... But even what about the just the ones that do, then, can't you say? <laughs> well, do you think
0: that's a majority or that's the minority?
1: Uh, well, won't won't is, can't you just say, just because they do that, it's, it's enough for, to call it a religion? But then we can
0: say that for, for football, too. Uh. Right? You know, in the sense that... Okay, so think about it, how many people show up for Eid, they don't show up for Jummah, don't show up for regular prayers. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, it's probably fair to say that majority of the people, meaning over 50% of the people who come for Eid, may not be making any consistent prayers for the whole rest of the year. Right? That could be their religious observance for the day, mm-hmm. for the year right um but considering the way people are dressing and all that other stuff um we can argue that it is not different than when Super Bowl Sunday comes all these people who don't even watch football like myself uh, are also getting together you know to be part of the event mm-hmm. right dun 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 this, these are the tough questions
1: no i mean i was i I already like, I, I kind of knew this
0: this is where we were going to go. Yeah. I was just kind of trying to see if there's an yeah. if there was a way you could do it the if there' was a way you could yeah. do it. I mean this is an assumption this is something that he is saying straightforward that he assumes, right, and someone else could assume everything is essentially religious mm. see what I'm saying, which would then mean Super Bowl Sunday is also religious so uh, I
1: will also take note that you did. Throw those shrimp, shade the dressing, like a proper Lacey uncle would. No, I'm just, maybe. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, um But I also assume that there are there were breaks between Christian and secular life, in which words and practices were rearranged and new discursive grammars replaced previous ones. I suggest that the fuller implications of those shifts need to be explored. So I take up fragments of the history of a discourse that is often asserted to be an essential part of religion, or at any rate to have a close affinity with it, to show how the sacred and the secular depend on each other. I dwell briefly on how religious myth contributed to the formation of modern historical knowledge and modern poetic sensibility, touching on on the way they have been adopted by some contemporary Arab poets, but I argue that this did not make history
0: or poetry essentially religious. Okay, so, so at one level he's saying, yeah, the, secular and the sacred, do, is sac- sacred, sacred and the secular do kind of depend on each other. Because one is the other. One is not the other. That which is not sacred, we can argue is secular, and vice versa. And he says, I dwell briefly on how religious myth contributed to the formation of modern historical knowledge and modern poetic sensibility. So one way to think of religion is uh, the ultimate art form. You know, start out with something like poetry, maybe bigger than that will be painting, maybe bigger than that will be sculpture, maybe bigger than that would be movies, maybe bigger than that could be something like architecture, and maybe something bigger than that could be religion. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting.
0: And so look at religion as the ultimate uh, art form, and it has knowledge mixed in with it.
1: It's, that's interesting because I remember I used I used to think I have some kind of thoughts like that when I when I was into art like really heavy I was just I don't know I, I don't know where I came with this but I contrasted them like a great artist with like a, a prophet for example uh-huh. where I always felt like they were the greatest artists so to speak in uh-huh. the sense that they like in, not only did they like they changed like people in societies and mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying like that mm-hmm. was their you could say, like, that's that's way bigger than something like, oh, I, I did an amazing painting. Mm-hmm. Not to, like, put that down, but, like, someone like a prophet just has this huge, you mm-hmm. know, like, in terms of, like, art and impact. Mm-hmm. I, just, I used to think, I used to, for some reason, my mind always contrasted those two. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Okay, thanks again. Okay.
1: That, too, is the case with recent statements by liberal thinkers for whom liberalism is a kind of redemptive myth. I point to the violence intrinsic to it, but caution that liberalism's secular myth should not be confused with the redemptive myth of Christianity, despite a resemblance between them. Needless to say, my purpose is neither to criticize nor to endorse that myth. So
0: again, when we speak about liberalism, we're basically saying open knowledge, open discussion, in contrast to having some authority that says this is right, that's wrong, right? So liberalism, you know, whatever's right, right, whatever's wrong, it's all open. Okay? And so that becomes a type of, it's an interesting point, he's saying that becomes a type of redemptive or a redemption for liberal thinkers, you know. I want to be able to think freely, and this is my redemption. But he's saying, don't look at that as the same way as you look at redemption in Christianity. So you can't easily say, you know, football is the same thing as Eid, mm-hmm. Right. You can make parallels, but still you can't say they're the same thing.
1: Mm. And more generally, I am not concerned to attack liberalism, whether as a political system or as an ethical doctrine. Here, as in the other cases I deal with, I simply want to get away from the idea that the secular is a mask for religion, that secular political practices often stimulate uh, stimulate religious ones. I therefore end with a brief outline of two conceptions of the secular that I see as available to anthropology today. And I do this through a discussion of text by Paul Man and Walter Benjamin, respectively.
0: Yeah, Paul De Man, I'm not as, as knowledgeable about Walter Benjamin. He writes a lot about media and illusions and illuminations and stuff like that. Okay, next subsection. A reading of origins, myth, truth, and power, on page 26. Right, okay. West European languages
1: acquire the word myth from the Greek. And stories about Greek gods were paradigmatic objects of critical reflection when mythology became a discipline in early modernity. So, a brief early history of the word and concept is in order. In his book Theorizing Myth, Bruce Lincoln opens with a fascinating early history of the Greek terms mythos and logos. Thus, we are told that Hesiod's Works and Days associates the speech of mythos with truth, Al- althea or aletheia and the speech of Logos with lies and dissimulation. Mythos is powerful speech, and the speech of heroes accustomed to prevail. In Homer, Lincoln points out, Logos refers to speech that is usually designed to placate someone and aimed at dissuading warriors from combat.
0: Okay, so what's the difference between Mythos and Logos? Mythos is, like, seen
1: as...
0: Ideal and logos is sort of pragmatic. Kind of. I mean, just like it says, mythos is more heroic, and logos is yeah, pragmatic is probably a good word. Yeah. It was a
1: better word than I was expecting. From you guys. Yeah. No, no, Look,
0: <laughs> I mean, the idea being that uh, mythos is to make someone heroic, and logos is to make someone not fight.
1: In the context of political assemblies, mythoi are of two kinds. Straight and crooked. Mithoi function in the context of law, much as logoi do in the context of war. Muthos in Homer is a speech act indicating authority performed at length, usually in public, with a full attention to every detail. It never means a symbolic story that has to be deciphered, or for that matter, a false one. In the Odyssey, Odysseus praises poetry, asserting that it is truthful, that it affects the emotions of its audience, that it is able to reconcile differences. And he concludes his poetic narration by declaring that he has recounted a mythos. Okay,
0: so, so Homer, or the Odyssey, it's a heroic tale. So there it would be mythos, right? Logos would be um, people are getting ready to go to war and you're trying to convince them not to. So it's almost like you're preventing people from being heroic, because you don't want them to die. Mm.
1: At first, poets tended to authorize their speech by calling it mythos, an inspiration from the gods, what moderns call, in a new accent, the supernatural world. Later, the sophists taught that all speech originated with humans, who lived in this world. Whereas the Christian worldview increasingly separates God from this world, writes Jan Bremer, the gods of the Greeks were not transcendent, but directly involved in natural and social processes. It is for such connections as between the human and divine spheres that a recent study has called the Greek worldview interconnected, against our own separative cosmology. But... There is more at stake here than the imminence or transcendence of divinity in relation to the natural world. The idea of nature is, is it itself internally transformed, for the representation of the Christian God is being cited. Quite apart in the supernatural world signals the construction of a secular space that begins to emerge in early modernity. Such a space permits nature to be reconceived as manipulatable material, determinate, homogeneous, and subject to mechanical laws. Anything beyond that space is therefore supernatural.
0: Okay, so what's the difference between the natural and the supernatural here? I mean, it's what it says that they can, you can sort of manipulate it. So the natural uh, follows all kinds of laws, mm-hmm. and that which is beyond that is supernatural. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Anything beyond that space is therefore supernatural. A place that, for many, was a fanciful extension of the real world, peopled by, people by irrational events and imagined beings. This transformation had a significant effect on the meaning of myth. The mythoi of poets, so the sophists said, are not emotionally affecting. They are also lies insofar as they speak of the gods, although even as lies they may have a morally improving effect on the audience. This line is taken up and given a new twist by Plato, Plato. Plato, who argued that philosophers and not poets were primarily responsible for moral improvement. In the course of his attack against poetry, Plato changed the sense of myth. It now comes to signify a socially useful lie.
0: Okay, so, how do people improve their behavior? It used to be through poetry, meaning part of the purpose of these heroic stories were to guide you on behavior, okay? Plato comes along and says, no, philosophy is better for this, okay? Which then means poetry and mythology are basically a set of lies, okay, but they're useful lies in terms of getting people, in terms of inspiring, inspiring people. But philosophy is better to actually guide people on how to behave.
1: Doesn't that kind of put like the, the that distinction on its head then with logos and mythos? Because he says logos was kind of lies. In yeah,
0: yeah, so so logos was lies to get people not to fight. In its original linguistic meaning or historical etymology, and mythos is the heroic, and now Plato's shifting it.
1: Because, yeah. yeah. Um... Enlightenment founders of mythology, such as Fontenelle took this view of the beliefs of antiquity about its gods. Like many other cultivated men of his time, he regarded the study of myth as an occasion for reflecting on human
0: error. Mm-hmm. All th- so look at that. So another purpose of myth is to look at the flaws of a human being. Okay, Like when you look at all the Greek gods, they all have very, very big flaws. Right? In contrast to how... In monotheist traditions, they look at the divine, especially, you know, we'd say Islam, and perhaps to some degree Judaism, where the divine is flawless, right? Although
1: we are incomparably more enlightened than those whose crude minds invented fables in good faith, he wrote, we easily require the same turn of mind that made those fables so attractive to them. They devoured them because they believed in them, and we devour them with just as much pleasure yet without believing in them. There is no better proof that the imagination and reason have little commerce with each other, and that things with, with, with which reason has first become disillusioned lose none of their attractiveness to the imagination." Fontenelle was a great naturalizer of supernatural events in the period when nature emerges as a distinctive domain of experience and study. Okay,
0: so these two parts of the being one is imagination, the other one's reason. Okay, and so it's kind of like mythos is imagination, reason, uh, logos is reason. Okay, and it used to be that mythos was more important, and then Plato comes along and makes logos more important.
1: But in the Enlightenment epoch as a whole, myths were never only subjects of belief and of rational investigation. As elements of high culture in early modern Europe, they were integral to its characteristic sensibility, a cultivated capacity for delicate feeling, especially for sympathy, and an in- an. A- and an ability to be moved by the pathetic in art and literature. Poems, paintings, the theater, public monuments, and private decoration in the homes of the rich depicted or alluded to the qualities and quests of Greek gods, goddesses, monsters, and heroes. Knowledge of such stories and figures was a necessary part of an upper-class education.
0: Mm -hmm. So then we move to the 1700s, 1800s. And so now myths were you know, their use became much more like, okay, what can I benefit from this, okay, as an art form, and art here now is even further away from any sort of like embodiment, like the way you look at a painting, you're not embodying the painting, but it is creating an emotion within you, okay, and so that's where myth starts to, to move to,
1: Myths allowed writers and artists to represent contemporary events and feelings in what we moderns call a fictional mode. The distanced idealization of profane love, the exaggerated praise for the sovereign, were equally facilitated by a fabulous style. And this, in turn, facilitated a form of satire that aimed to unmask or literalize. Ecclesiastical authority could thus be attacked in an indirect fashion, without immediately risking the charge of blasphemy. In general, the literary assault on mythic figures and events demonstrated a preference for a sensible life of happiness as opposed to the heroic ideal that was coming to be regarded as less and less reasonable in a bourgeoisie society.
0: Mm-hmm. So here when we're saying bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie society, we're saying an increased merchant society. Okay, so in the past it would have been kings and serfs and soldiers right, and ministers. But now you have what is essentially a rising middle class, a rising merchant class. Which also means a new rise in literacy, and so all of these things become less and less useful okay? or they looked at it as less and less realistic. that's probably a better way to put it
1: but as Jean Starobinsky reminds us, myth was more than a decorative language or a satirical one for taking a distance from the heroic as a social ideal. In the great tragedies and operas of the 17th and 18th centuries, myths provided the material through which the psychology of human passions could be explored. So the question of whether people did or did not believe in these ancient narratives, whether, as Fontenelle suggested, by appealing to the imagination untruths were made attractive, does not quite engage with the terrain that mythic discourse inhabited in this culture. Myth was not merely a misrepresentation of the real. It was material for shaping the possibilities and limits of action.
0: Okay, so one thing that myth provides, so he's saying myth is not misrepresenting the real, it's showing you what's possible. And we do that in some of our books, although not in theory, not as myths, you hear about this person who prayed for 40 years and then realized none of those prayers were sincere, so they re-prayed all, all those 40 years of prayers, right? Or someone does a thousand such does every night, right? Or every, a thousand Rakats every, every day. And so that's beyond what any of us are going to come even close to, but it is showing you what's possible. And so that's one, another one of the purposes of the myth. It's showing you the possibilities and perhaps limits of action. In general.
1: And in general, it appears to have done this by feeding the desire to display the actual, a desire that became increasingly difficult to satisfy as the experiential opportunities of modernity multiplied. Some modern commentators have observed that statements such as Fontenelle's signaled a mutation of the older opposition between sacred and profane into a new opposition between imagination and reason, principles that inaugurate the secular Enlightenment. This change, they suggest, should be seen as the replacement of a religious hegemony by a secular one. But I think what we have here is something more complicated.
0: Okay, so some people are arguing this is a sign of the rise of secularization. And he's saying, no, it's a bit more complicated. Number one. The first point to note is that in the newer binary,
1: reason is endowed with the major work of defining, assessing, and regulating the human imagination to, my- to which myth was attributed. Marcel this, puts it this way, Exclusionary procedures multiply in the discourse of the science of myths, born on a vocabulary of scandal that indicts all figures of otherness. Mythology is on the side of the primitive, the inferior races, the peoples of nature, the language of origins, childhood, savagery, madness, always the other as the excluded figure. But the sacred had not been endowed with such a function in the past, and there was as yet there was as yet no unitary domain in social life, and thought that the concept of the sacred organized instead, there were disparate places, objects, and times, each with its qualities and each requiring conduct and words appropriate to it. This point requires elaboration, so I will now discuss the sacred slash profane binary before returning to the
0: theme of myth. Okay, so next time, inshallah, we're going to start from page 30, uh, the section, I digression on the sacred and the profane. So then, what are some key points from today? One is, in defining myth, we're looking at this evolution. First, we start with the etymology of the word, and then we look at how that was the primary way of teaching uh, uh, morality, and then it shifts to becoming, eventually, uh, showing what a person, or what can happen, as well as what the limits are. Um, but that in itself, that shift, doesn't necessarily mean that secularization has risen. And then he's going to address that more when he talks about the sacred and the profane. Any questions? Okay, we'll stop right here. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashhadu illa ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruk wa akhirat da'wana anilhamdulillahi